I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Eden Abrahams and Joanna Starrick. Eden is a partner at RHR International and leads the firm's hypergrowth practice area a unique support system designed to equip founders and their teams with the insights and tools they need to lead at scale. Joanna has been providing leadership advisory services for over 13 years, specializing in coaching first-time CEOs and building strong executive teams. And thankfully, their bios are longer than that and more impressive. But when you're doing two, I just wanted to get going with the conversation because we have a lot to unpack here. So let's start with just quick backgrounds and intros beyond what I kind of teed up already. Eden, would you mind just giving a little bit more background in terms of your focus and, and how you found yourself at RHR International? Yeah, sure. I'm going to give you the abridged version because I've had a nonlinear kind of serpentine career path up until this point. I started off out of college in PR and marketing, but always had this idea that I wanted to work internationally in business. And so after I went to graduate school for economics and international affairs, I found myself at the G7 group doing macropolitical strategy. And at the time, and this is obviously going to be dating me, there was a lot of questions in the financial markets about whether or not European Monetary Union would happen or not. And that was my focal point. So I would travel to Brussels and Paris and Rome and talk to politicians and economists and journalists and sort of get the inside scoop on what was happening and then arbitrage that information to our clients who were banks and hedge funds. And that was great fun, really interesting. And it led me eventually to New York and to some roles in public affairs. And then I landed at a strategic communications advisory firm where we worked primarily with leadership teams that were involved in special situations. So deals, proxy fights, IPOs, litigation. And it was very sort of fast paced, exciting, and also a really interesting vantage point to see senior teams under stress. 
And over time, I could see, because we often would keep them as clients after those deals were completed and do, you know, investor days and, and standard investor relations. I could see that there was this correlation between high-performing leadership teams and healthy cultures and dysfunctional teams, and unfortunately saw a lot of those, and toxic cultures. And that kind of piqued my interest in wanting to be doing a different kind of work with the leaders that I was advising that was more developmental and more focused on helping them lead differently, build their teams differently, and have healthier cultures. And that was the catalyst for me to go back again for another master's degree, that this time in executive coaching. And I can say a little bit about that being an interesting conduit to me becoming an entrepreneur of sorts, because I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. And my plan was to you know, get the degree and then join a firm. But I ended up doing my research thesis on first-time women entrepreneurs that were all part of a co-working space in New York called In Good Company. And I think, honestly, just by virtue of being around them, spending a lot of time there, and then doing this thesis on the impact of peer coaching on their transformation experience, it just kind of, I guess, a light bulb went off. And I, I started to think, well, why would I join a firm when, in fact, I could just start my own and I have all the makings of a good network right here? And I have young kids and I would appreciate the autonomy and the flexibility that working for myself would, would offer. So I hung out a shingle just kind of as an experiment and had a lot of success, ended up bringing some partners on board and was happily doing my thing when RHR came knocking. And honestly, Joanna and a few other really impressive senior partners who I met in my interview process with them, the due diligence process really, were instrumental in making me decide that I was going to leave the firm that I started and and come to RHR, help build the hypergrowth practice area, and really just you know, sort of upskill my capabilities, not just in terms of what I was already doing as a coach and facilitator, but also add new sort of adjacent areas of expertise, board advisory, and, and all the other practice areas that we that we offer assessment, which I'm still learning and Joanne is an expert at. So that's, I guess that's the abbreviated version. That's terrific. And, and you're a few years in, but Joanna has been there for a long time. So you mm-hmm. have has some deep institutional knowledge within the organization. would love to get a little bit of background on yourself. You have a really cool, differentiated academic background, which I think helps inform this conversation. So we'd love to have you unpack that a little bit and talk about your role within the organization as well. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having us. And I love hearing Eden's background because this is what I love about RHR is we all come from different places and many of us have nonlinear careers. So I've been with RHR almost 20 years. I'm You know, I've been a CEO, board, advisory coach for a lot of that and have worked with a lot of CEOs and founders. But currently, I run our, I'm our chief commercial officer. I get to run all of our products and services and innovations into market. And Eden runs one of our our private markets group. And so I get to help her as we innovate and, and brought our business to Silicon Valley and other areas and private equity. But my background started, I'm a psychologist by training. My background started in performance psychology, sport and exercise psychology. And I was always interested in what I might call, it's the psychology of success. I Early on, I did a lot of research on excellence and what is, I was very curious if there were personalities or qualities that led to excellence and performance. And I did that for a long time. I was a professor at the University of Colorado. And then I pivoted careers, mid-career, mostly just because I I get intellectually bored and I got pulled into the business world by RHR about 20 years ago. And then I started to convert what I knew about the psychology of excellence into work with around leadership. 
and executives and what it takes. I started out with looking at really huge multinational companies. What does it take to be a CEO of Fortune 10 company working with their teams, but also got extremely fascinated on the psychology of these hyper-growth companies and the leaders and founders and what it takes to get there and the, and the partnership with investors. Because it, it actually reminded me a bit of the psychology of some of the high-performance athletes I worked with. There's, a, there's some similarities. So that's a little bit on my background. And it's a great segue into this conversation that I want to have. The reason I flagged your firm was Eden was in quoted in an article in the New York Times, and I have it up, the end of faking it in Silicon Valley right now that we're in this tech crash and enjoying a lot of things that you commented on the last, call it 10 or 20 years of this huge tech boom and the culture and the mentality behind a lot of these firms has been move fast and break things, first to market. If you're not first, you're last, market share, et cetera. It does kind of remind me of a lot of sports analogies in many ways. And you're, Eden, especially within this hyper-growth practice area. Could you maybe talk about, I'll start with Joanne and then we can move to Eden, what that has been like working with some of these firms over this last cycle of not just the tech boom, but you know what's happened broadly across business before this most recent kind of pause in growth for a lot of firms? Well, the first thing I would say is it's, it's an absolute privilege to work with anyone who's trying to sort of, I don't know, disrupt industry, do things differently, take on the risk of being an entrepreneur, a founder. I mean, those are high stakes games. And I don't mean it in a reckless way. I mean it that as a human being, you're going to challenge yourself in ways that you've never been challenged before. And any crack in your psychology has got to emerge as you do that. So uh, people are playing on the edges here, and I, particularly in venture capital, different in private equity. But on venture capital, there's a lot of that, you know, trying to do things differently. You're always going to have some, you know, when, when a rocket ship takes off, some of them are going to crash and some of them are going to keep flying. And so, you know, people are playing on the edges. But that said, just backing up, and I think that's where we get fascinated by are those extreme stories. But to ground us more in a bit in reality, I would say there's an evolution to founder development. And so what we do at RHR when we're working with investor firms or when we're working with founders and CEOs is we're really trying to understand the evolution of where they are. Are they early stage? Are they mid-stage? Are they trying to exit? Are they trying to go public? And we work with them, whether it's assessment or development, really understanding the qualities of what it takes to be successful and help people ground in that. I think people kind of get lost in their own assumptions of what it takes to be successful rather than looking at the data, what the market needs for them, their capacity to pivot. So the recent market is not different than five years ago. You know, every moment in time requires different things from leadership. And that's what we do. We help investment firms and we help leaders figure out what is the moment in time demanding from you now and can you pivot? Ethan, would love to hear your thoughts. Kind of same general question, but from a perspective of many of these firms, you know, in the article that you are referenced in, there has been a bit of a cult of personality around some of these firms within the entrepreneur themselves, right? Famously, you know, Amazon is one of the only firms where the the founder has taken a step back. In many ways, Facebook, et cetera, are still run by the original founders. Maybe talk about kind of what that's been like for you the last five years and then 
what the flip side of that is now that you're working with firms that are maybe trying to understand how to allocate capital and, and how to understand that founder entrepreneur personality and avoid any red flags? No, I mean, just piggyback, piggybacking on what Joanna said, I think it's very easy to read the sensationalist headlines and make assumptions about the fact that everybody in that world is playing fast and loose and cutting corners. And the truth is, we just so rarely see that in our work. I have a lot of empathy and respect for founders who are operating in a pressure cooker. And as Joanna pointed out, there really is this there's an imperative to evolve. And I don't think that it's something that early stage founders give a lot of thought to. They have an idea, they have a product or a service that they're passionate about. They want to bring it out into the world. And a lot of their early energy and time is invested in that, right? So getting funding, figuring out if there's product market fit. And so when we're working with a very early stage founder, if they have the foresight to think about how could I create a team that's going to help elevate my odds of being successful. They might have a coach, they might have a mentor, they might also have advisors who bring expertise in very specific areas. And we're really helping them try to beat the odds, right? And it's less about them thinking about scale at that point than it is about just doing all the right things, managing their time, managing their energy, and operating at peak performance in, uh, in you know, that rise and grind world, which is very challenging. Further along the line is when we start to see very typical challenges that founders face when, let's say, they've gone from 25 people now to 100 people. So everything requires shifts. It's going from a one-to-one or one-to-few way of communicating to one-to-many. There's obviously like the constant need to be agile, move fast and break things, but there's starting to also be this need to build repeatable processes and and systems that can scale, frameworks that work. And then you have to think about, you know, communications cadences. How is that? And maybe you have a, a distributed workforce. You probably do. So how are you as the founder taking that passion and that mission and making sure that it's getting embedded in not just how you're communicating, but how your senior team is communicating? And then there's the senior team itself, like the two college roommates who came on board, one of whom was the CTO in the early days, five years in, three years in, is probably not the right CTO. There's always that. So it's also about having a really clear-eyed view of talent and culture and making sure that you're you know, looking around corners and thinking about, are these the right people around the table with me now? And then how am I going to need to change some of these people out so that we're where we need to be from a leadership standpoint tomorrow? And then there's just the skills that go along with that, having difficult conversations, managing conflict. You know, there's stakeholders in that ecosystem that have to be attended to. So those are all the things that we're kind of helping founders block and tackle as they move along, you know, this this stage of evolution. And a lot of it has to do with having a growth mindset, as, as I think one of you just pointed out. It's really, I, I guess my favorite quote by Carol Dweck, who wrote that book, Mindset, is, you know, why waste time proving over and over how great you are when you can be getting better? And what we see, I think Joanna would corroborate this, is that the best leaders are always looking for that marginal edge. They're looking for how can I get smarter? How can I have a, a better network that's bringing new ideas and new ways of thinking into, you know, into my world? How can I make sure that I'm an early adopter of things that are going to have an impact in this organization? And who are the right people for me to be talking to? And resetting that filter over and over as they scale so that they can evolve to be the leader that their organizations need at different points in time. 
Yeah, I don't think people appreciate, I mean, we have a small firm, but I've been an entrepreneur for 10 plus years and it's very challenging. And oftentimes this entrepreneurial journey occurs right at the growth of your personal and family life as well. And it's a lot to handle simultaneously. I want to flip the lens a little bit. You talked about Eden from the entrepreneur perspective or the company perspective. I'd love to get your thoughts. Maybe we'll kind of start with with Joanna. On the investor side, if you are you know, trying to identify and capitalize on some of these opportunities or some of these companies that are in this hyper growth world or this, especially this venture backed world that can be very exciting, how do you kind of create a rubric to analyze these opportunities and be able to take advantage of them when they present themselves? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I also do think it goes back to stage, right? I do think there are some qualities of early stage founders where you're trying to create product market fit that I think a lot of people are looking for, which is, you know, a, a bias to action, a level of grit, a type of iterative thinking, you know, the capacity to have vision and think differently. And those are really powerful qualities for somebody who's going to create something new. And really that level of resilience to persist on what you were talking about, Brian, as you evolve as a founder, you're going to have to reinvent yourself and the company over and over and over again if you're going to stay in the role and any cracks in your personality will get revealed. It's just <laughs> most people don't know what they're getting into. There should be a warning sign when you become an entrepreneur. So I do think investors are pretty good at that sort of figuring out the early stage founder that they want. I think the critical, the difficult part is when you get into growth phase and because the quality start to shift slightly and what worked in early stage isn't necessarily what you need from your leader on the next stage of growth. And that's when you see those hard decisions for investors and the founder themselves has to think about, can I change and evolve? And am I even interested in the tasks that are required to get to the company? And you, you actually see a lot of people step out then and sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not. But if the investor group and some investor groups have a bias to founders and if the founder themselves decide they want to take it all the way through, you know, the Googles, the Airbnbs, the Amazons, this sort of moving through the cycle of growth, then you're really on a journey together. And that's a different set of qualities that you have to start identifying. Eden, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Joanna's comments and then maybe differentiating between working with an investor looking to allocate towards early stage hypergrowth and then a more established firm and, and what those qualitative and quantitative dynamics are. Well, I think that, you know, what Joanna said is really quite accurate. And as far as the the imperative to think about this as a journey, I mean, I think Joanna has some CEO clients that she's worked with over a number of years. I think that as the longer I do this, the more I tend to think about it as as being part of an ecosystem. And there's a lot that happens in organizations and in any relationship that's implicit and kind of tacit and isn't articulated fully. And so one of the things that we often do when we start to work with a leader or a senior team is to come in on the front end and gather a lot of data because that data is what really allows us to drive different conversations than the ones that are being had and to sort of reveal, you might be thinking that it feels like really good to be a rank and file, rank and file employee in this organization, or you might be thinking that people on the leadership team are all fully aligned and understand the mission and the vision. And in fact, what we've learned through these diagnostics is that there isn't really alignment. 
And so, you know, whether it's doing a 360 for the founder or doing a senior team effectiveness survey or an operating culture survey, that data on the front end allows us to make things explicit that have not been before and then sort of agree to the so what. Okay, so now that we know this, what do we want to do about it? And that is really where we start to co-create blueprints that are going to inform the development and the evolution of the founder, the development and the evolution of the team. And stakeholders like board members and investors play a really important part of that because we include them in the analysis phase. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we do, and I can give you a, a real life example that can be very helpful at critical inflection points when a company is evolving and scaling quickly is when there's a CEO transition. So we recently worked with a company where the founder who had been the CEO for six years, decided to step down, well, into the exec chair role. And and the president, who had been with the company for a year, was tapped as his successor. Board was excited about it. So there was a lot of alignment there and, you know, optimism. But at the same time, that's a really tricky transition to navigate. What are the roles and responsibilities of the CEO versus an executive chairman who prior, you know, previously had just been the CEO? And what does great look like not at this moment in time when the transition is happening, but let's say two years out. So we came in and did a pretty thorough assessment, interviewed every board member, even observers, interviewed everyone on the senior leadership team to understand what are the six role imperatives that this new incoming CEO needs to nail and be laser focused on to be successful. And then that was a document, like it became sort of a, a living document that the board you know, saw and agreed to that the CEO signed off on. And that really informed the work that we did with him from a coaching standpoint, as well as the senior team. And so again, it goes back to this idea of like, how can you, how can you make, how can you create and drive conversations that really bring to life the journey that somebody's on, the journey that the company's on, and then identify clearly the resources that need to be marshaled and the types of support that need to be acquired to get through these critical inflection points and transitions. What I was thinking as Eden was speaking, the reason she's talking about data, Brian, going back to your original question on what can investors do is a lot of investors have their own bias on what it takes to grow to a certain stage. And so just as the founder needs to understand their biases of what they think great leadership is and where they need to pivot, so do investors, um, particularly if an investor has been successful growing their own company, whether it's a family business or something else. Sometimes there's a tendency to want to cast people on your own image. Like, I did it this way, so therefore you need to do it that way. And you got to be really thoughtful about that moment if that's true, because that might be true for this company and it might not. And so that's where sometimes you slow it down to get a bit of that data and really critical thinking. And that's, I think, part of the reason that we, at that inflection point, we slow people down to speed them up to make sure they're making the right decisions for themselves and the company. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Well, so let's stick with that narrative because, you know, there's been a disruption within tech in general, right? We've seen bank fallouts, and then there's a lack of funding. Every day there's an article about how difficult it is for venture companies to access capital. The I think the corollary there is talking with a lot of family offices that have a multi-generational time horizon. 
now may be one of the best vintages ever to invest into venture. If you yes. have conviction and a long time horizon, because valuations are very investor friendly. Yes. And it typically in these recessionary periods, the strong get really strong and, and there's the, you know, the weak get washed out and those companies that emerge become like market makers, right? So Joanna, and we can transition to Eden afterwards, but what are the, like, what are you seeing right now and how are investors assessing the current landscape within the, the venture world? Yeah, I do think they're questioning themselves more. I think this tendency, I think there's, particularly with some of the bigger venture firms, I think there's been this bias to hiring an incredibly charismatic, risk-taking personality who can go far. And then, and I, candidly, there's been some, not, I don't want to use the word manipulation, encouragement behind the scenes to take really big risks. And, you, and, and I think there's been a lot of loss of capital and dollars with some of those personas. There's also been some others that are really successful. So I think people are questioning themselves a bit more, and I think there's a desire for a little more rigor. I think, to me, it's less about the founder persona. That might be why we're, where investors are focusing in the wrong place, more around the diligence of when you have somebody who's going to break boundaries and grow, most investor-backed boards in the venture space are, are really focused on growth. They're not focused as much on the oversight and like what happens along the way to make sure you're making judicious decisions and judgment. There's a fine line there that you, there could be a little bit more oversight in the near term. And it's not about slowing someone down. It's just helping them mature into really great decisions for a company that's more sustainable. So I think we're seeing a trend, a, a pivot towards that. But we're also seeing what you were talking about, which is a lot of private equity stepping into these hyper growth stages and actually having the capital to invest. I, I think People are not quite sure yet what's their own level of risk-taking and how much scrutiny do they need to put in to these early-stage companies and how much risk they want to take. So the dialogue is shifting on, on both sides, I think. I would just add that you know we have for many years been working alongside of private equity companies on the due diligence side of things to help assess the leaders of, of companies they're looking to acquire. And we have kind of a success rubric that we've developed that we then tailor very, very explicitly to account for, you know, questions that the deal team might have about the founder or other members of the senior team. And we run a very thorough process and can share some insights on the other side of that that can drive the decision making. You know, when talking to some VC investors, it's starting to sound like, you know, whereas that might have seemed like an impossibility not too long ago to ask, to ask a founder to submit, let's say, to, to an assessment process. I think there is more of a sense that that's appropriate under certain circumstances in the same way that if they're having some trouble understanding the financials, they might bring in an outside consultant to do a deeper dive than they, they can do on their own. I've heard investors say, yeah, if we have some question marks about someone who, who we're thinking about writing a big check to, we have no compunction about asking them if they would be you know, willing to go through an assessment. So I do think there is convergence and there, there are shifts that are happening in the, in the private markets landscape as it relates to the due diligence piece of things. Yeah, you would think in today's environment, capital has leverage over entrepreneurs and they can force change or, or you know, have them undergo certain things. Whereas over the last cycle, it was really entrepreneurs or these startups had the ability to push back and just say, hey, you're going to get this allocation or not, and we'll go somewhere else, right? And so I, exactly. I, do, I do think that dynamic has changed. I want to 
go a little bit deeper into the characteristics and fact patterns that you see repeated in founders that do really well or that startups that do well? And, and Joanna, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, especially given your sports psychology yeah. background or psychology of success. Are there commonalities that you see oftentimes from some of these yeah. companies? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that yeah, talk to some of these sensationalist personalities that we tend to focus on in the press. I think people sometimes succeed in spite of those personalities, not because of it. And so you have to look underneath at what they're actually doing. So let's just so let's just put that aside. But I think, you know, the the places of successful companies that you do see, I think there is this early stage ambition, what I call the striving stage, willing to break glass, willing to do things different, iterative thinking. But when you get then there's this middle phase of growth in a company, and it really is like late series B, C, D, moving into the achieving phase. There's a real pivot because you can't grow off the force of your personality alone anymore. You have to grow through leading through other people. And one of the patterns that we're noticing on the companies that succeed, because as you get successful, you have to find a counterbalance to your personality. There has to be a governor. And if you can't govern, you know, if you can't govern yourself, you can't come down to earth, which ultimately you have to do at some point. But partnerships, you know, let's say you look at something like the Airbnb founders, they had a psychological balance amongst three of themselves where they kept themselves in check. Early on with Google, those founders had a way to keep themselves in check. Mark Zuckerberg kept himself in check with Sheryl Sandberg. So sometimes, so there's number one, a willingness of the founder or the CEO to evolve and change, learn how to work through others to actually lead differently. But also there begins to be a slight more system of checks and balances. It doesn't slow growth, but it allows for a different type of evolution of the company. And making it through that gauntlet is not a given. It's a really different psychological profile than just the person who's going to take the risk to grow and invent a new product. Just building on that, you know, one of the things that I do and really love is I'm a, I'm a founding guide at Chief, which is the women's network that's trying to catalyze you know, the rise of women into more senior roles and create community for, for senior leaders. And, and before I did that, I, I worked with an organization called Menwise that set up peer learning groups for specific functions of VC-backed companies. So I led a chief people officer group, I led a chief revenue officer group, and I led a chief operating officer group. And I learned a tremendous amount from doing that. And what I would say about the chief operating officer group is that no one person in that room had the same role because their roles were so defined by what their CEO either couldn't or didn't want to do well. <laughs> and so I think it is really important. And again, this goes back to the idea of self-awareness and having data about yourself. Once you can own the things that you're not only good at, but you are passionate about and that give you energy and that you enjoy doing, it's really important to work with leaders to help them figure out how do they fill their plate mostly with those things and then be able to delegate the stuff they're not as good at, they don't enjoy as much to other people on the team and in the organization who can carry it forward. And so those symbiotic relationships are tremendously important, uh, you know, throughout the life cycle of, of a founder's evolution and become more complex as more stakeholders and more people are required to keep trains running on time and to manage, you know, bigger and bigger functional areas of an organization. Do you, either of you have, and we'll keep it kind of anonymous, but a, a mandate that you're currently working on that you think is representative of 
how you work with firms or what you're seeing in the marketplace today? Yeah, I mean, I think we're working with a couple of companies right now where the founder is this. These are more that have just I think one of our sweet spots is helping companies right as they go public, the shift in the board and then the shift for the leadership. And we're working with a couple of companies right now where the founder has moved to executive chair and they brought in a different and outside CEO. And, and that's one way you can solve this growth opportunity. It's a big moment in the life cycle of a firm. And it's really fraught with all sorts of things. Like what is, and I'm, we're working with two companies doing that right now. We're working on the relationship between the founder and the new CEO. Like what's the level of trust and decision rights we're working on. But really there's a lot of identity stuff going on with founders stepping into other roles. Like because now they've been wildly successful and most and many of them are billionaires and it's sort of like, okay, well now what? And how do I still have this level of impact on my company, but let someone else run it? And so <laughs> I don't know if that's that's typical of the investor moment right now, but I'm seeing there's there's a shift towards, okay, more openness, even within the founders themselves and with the investor companies of like making some of those shifts, forcing some of those shifts for stability and market. So I think that's one we're working on. We're working with another company right now where we've got a founder who's decided he's staying in role. He's very young and he's hiring for the very first time leaders who are 20 years older than him. And so what we're working with there is how do you lead scaled leaders that know more than you do? And how do you actually invite a bit more autonomy and let the company grow through them? So I'm not sure that's as much about the moment as it is about some of those standard transitions we've been talking about. Yeah, I can give an example. We're working with a company right now that has over a thousand employees and, you know, it's kind of realizing after making a substantial acquisition that has given it even more scale that, you know, what got them here isn't going to get them there. So it's been up until this point, a very lovely and kind of warm and cozy place where decisions are lar largely made by consensus, where, you know, there's a lot of space and time and room given for, you know, dialogues and conversations that have a direct impact on strategy and a lot of, uh, I would say, kind of fuzziness around, okay, well, these are our priorities for now, but if a shiny new object comes along, we might just, you know, divert and go down a different path. And there was a recognition to their credit that this is not how they can continue to operate. And so we went in and did an operating culture survey, which gave us a lot of really good data about what they're doing really well that they should keep on doing and what from a cultural standpoint is kind of their special sauce and this unique DNA that they want to maintain at all costs. And what are some habits, behaviors, ways of working that are going to be holding them back if they don't evolve them quickly? And so this is going to lead into probably yeah, a year and a half long engagement where we're doing work simultaneously with you know the two most senior people, the CEO and the, and the COO, also with members of the leadership team. We also have some more scaled development offerings and we're in there right now doing that with some of their high potential leaders. So this is going to arm them with a lot of self-awareness and then a lot of tools to help them navigate this transition, which is going to feel, especially for kind of the OGs, and you always have in organizations, the OGs who've been there from the beginning and then the newer joiners. And there's disparities, of course, among how they, how they feel about change. But you know, the goal is to do it in a way that feels organic and that feels like it is being contributed to and co-created by a large number of people and not just this top-down mandate. Like, right, we have this data. 
here's the new blueprint for what we're going to look like. Go make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I think two of the trends that you're both hitting on directly and indirectly, one, these companies were staying private for much longer than was typical over the last cycle. And so they these founders did not have you know, the research analysts and the Wall Street folks breathing down their backs and looking at everything. And so it enabled some behavior, right? It also probably enabled some growth that otherwise wouldn't have happened. But that is definitely a dynamic that shifts pretty dramatically. And frankly, we might be heading back into a cycle like that, just given where markets are, IPO activity, I think will be subdued for a while. And yeah. so we, we may be back into that world uh, that we had been in for 10 plus years. And the other one is, you know, interestingly, just demographically, we're in the first kind of phase of, of work where younger employees are teaching up to older employees in a lot of ways, especially in technology, right? I know I've experienced that within marketing for sure. And it can be hard for people like me to <laughs> swallow that bitter pill oftentimes, but it's just the reality of where we are. So I think you've highlighted both of those things. Do you have any commentary on, on any of that? I 100% agree. And I think that it also is creating a lot of tension and challenges for leaders when you've got different generations who have different attitudes and views about authority, who have different attitudes and views about how important it is that where they work aligns from a value standpoint with their personal beliefs and preferences. They have different attitudes about how vocal a company and its leadership team should be about trends that are happening in the world around us. So that all creates a lot of additional pressure. It's just a very, it's a tough needle to thread for, for a CEO who has to make calls and decisions knowing that you can't make all the people happy all the time. And and there are new there are new issues that crop up every day that need to be addressed and thought through. And there are implications for, you know, for the rest of the company and its and its people. And Brian, I'm thinking about your first comment on that companies might be staying private longer and the implications of that. And that sometimes when you're staying private, it can enable bad behaviors because it can cover them up. Because Honestly, there's that moment of when all of a sudden you're accountable to public markets does force a change in behavior. And people, some sometimes leaders we work with don't believe us until that happens. And then they're like, oh, now I understand everything you were talking about that was needed from leadership. And so it kind of goes back to an earlier comment we made around this might mean a pivot for investor boards, which is complicated because investor boards tend to be very disparate groups and don't always have a strong alignment on what they care about what they want from their leaders, and it makes it difficult to hold the leader to account. So I could see that that could be an important pivot if, if, if the market stays that way for boards to start thinking about what is our role here to manage the development of the leaders and the teams beneath us. And part of that is connects to what Eden's saying. What, what do you expect from them culturally? What do you expect from them in terms of the way they connect to different generations and you know, other types of questions like that? Not to provide a commercial for your firm, but a lot of opportunity, but a lot of risk in the market right now, I think. And for savvy investors and companies that want to grow, I think bringing in third-party professionals makes a ton of sense. I've become a huge proponent of this just by my association with YPO. We have a lot of what we internally call hired guns, but consultants that come in and I've seen the power. So I want to thank you both for coming on. It's been terrific. I really appreciate you taking the time and being open to having this conversation with us. If people are interested, we'll provide content information, but if they're interested in connecting with either you to learn about your work or RHR in general, in terms of the suite of services, are there certain resources that you would point out to folks or help them get connected? 
Yeah, I mean, they can go to our website, rhrinternational.com, or both of Eden and I on LinkedIn are easy way to connect. It's probably the easiest yeah. way to connect with us. Yeah, that's how that's how I did it. And I just yeah. kind of <laughs> cold emailed to Eden. She was open to a conversation, which is terrific. And I have to say that yeah. I found out that the story had broken from you reaching out to me on LinkedIn. I didn't realize it was even slated to be. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things that's funny, like to your comment, <laughs> But when we were talking earlier about entrepreneurs and how hard it is, like, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. I've been raising capital for a long time. Being told no is just like part of my job. I reach out cold to a lot of people to come on the show. I'd say most people just like say no or they don't respond. But it is funny. I don't think people who read newspaper or I'm old, I read the newspaper, but like a lot of these articles get stowed and stashed and then released like months afterwards. And you ping somebody and they say, oh, I didn't realize it went live, I guess. The New York Times and Wall Street Journal like doesn't give these people a heads up, right? They just run them when they run no. them, which is something I didn't appreciate until I started reaching out to people. It's funny. One question we do ask people to come on the show, we'll start with Eden and we'll go to Joanna. And do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Yes. <laughs> well, I would say that for me, and I've tried meditation and I know one day I'm going to nail it, but uh, I would say for me, it's it's exercise, whether I'm I'm walking my dog or I do kind of this Pilates-based class that I've been doing for many, many years that I know so well that it's almost like moving meditation that really helps center me. Well, I definitely have an annual practice. I made a commitment that I learn one new thing every year that I don't know how to do that I'm bad at. And it, it's a really great way to stay grounded in life and keep growing and keep contributing. Last year, I learned how to sail. This year, I took a Qigong teacher training class. And so, which is a type of, that. it's a type of Tai Chi. I was about to say, is that like Tai Chi? Okay, cool. It's like a type of Tai Chi, but it's connected to Chinese medicine. And it's a, it's a, you know, breathing practice around healing and other things. And honestly, that is an amazing practice for grounding you 10 minutes a day. It's a sort of a body movement meditation. I had no idea what I was stepping into, but it, that do you one use an, is interesting. Do you use an app or YouTube or how do you? Well, I took a class with a master. And so I have all these videos now. I Now I do some of the ones that they taught us to teach. But yeah, if you go on Qigong and there's tons of videos out there. And if you're someone that needs to meditate by movement, it's a really simple, easy, very grounded practice to get into. Cool. Eden and I both learned something about you today. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you both for coming on. It's great. Best of luck. I know you all will probably be very busy in today's environment. Thank you again. Thank our listeners for joining us. Please leave a review, comment, and a rating. Let us know your favorite part of the show. And I look forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thank you so much for having us yeah, here. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.